All right, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 9 through 14 of Colossians 1 this morning. And I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this for us. I feel like I point this out every week, but I'll say it again. Uh, This is nothing short of a supernatural event. God speaks to us through his word. This is unlike any other book. There's lots of really good books, lots of books that can make us feel certain things and inspire us to do or think certain things. And so with that, Paul and Timothy say to the church in Colossae, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that you could your evil disposition in our self-centered hearts we would say, that would be great if God would just leave us alone. If God would not talk to us and if we were just allowed, completely and utterly permitted to lean on our own understanding and do what is right in our own eyes. But you uh, very emphatically say, I love y'all too much to let you do that. And so I'm going to invade your lives. I'm going to prevail on you. I'm going to ultimately overcome your self-absorbed, self-infatuated inclinations, and I'm going to conform you to the image of my son who so shockingly came here not to condemn his enemies, but to save them and to forgive them and to call them as co-heirs with himself, inheritors, of paradise, his kingdom. And so we ask that you would provoke us by the... So there are, there are things in life that are so profound. I mean, every moment of every, of every day of your life, just inescapably profound things. And yet, these things are so obvious that we don't really pay any attention to those things. So like really easy example would be gravity. Gravity is relevant right now. Right now, gravity is extremely relevant to to our meeting here in this room. We're not just floating around. Our cars aren't just floating up into outer space. Like we rely on on gravity all the time, right? And there may be moments like yesterday when I was climbing up the ladder to get on my roof with the leaf blower in one hand and a cold beer in the other. Just joking. I wasn't no beer. But but just you know, climbing a ladder, getting on the roof with objects in your hand, like. It'll get your attention. And you'll be sort of reminded that gravity is a big deal. It's a really big deal. Well, that's what God's will is like. 
We, we all deep down know that God's will is relevant, hyper relevant to our everyday lives. It's, it's never not deeply, ubiquitously relevant. And yet we don't really, really think about it as much as we, as much as we should. Here's, here's something that we can all agree on, okay? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I know a lot of you are, but if you're here today and you're like, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really think Jesus is that great, I'm not a Christian. So if you're not a Christian or you are a Christian or wherever you are on the political spectrum with all the polarizing uh, political lines that we draw, here's something that we can all agree on. At least we can agree on. You didn't decide to exist. Okay, for, for all the talk these days of what we're going to do, our self-determined ideas of who we're going to be, what we're going to be about, our agenda, our will, let's just go back to the very basic fact that, okay, at a minimum we can agree that we didn't, excite, we didn't decide to exist. As a matter of fact, you weren't even asked if you wanted to exist. That seems like a big deal. Your existence, I assume you think that's a big deal. You, you, you all take yourselves very seriously. I do too. This is just common to all humans. So the fact that you weren't consulted about where you'd be born, like what era of human history or geographically where you would be born or to whom you would be born, your parents, your siblings, your extended relatives, all of these people have a formative impact on your life. Don't you think you ought to have been consulted? I mean, you think your opinion really matters. This is a big deal. And yet you weren't asked. You weren't asked what gender you'd like to be born as, right? I mean, we, we play loosey-goosey with that culturally now, at least in America and other cultures, but, but at, at least you didn't decide, you know, what your gender would be when you were born or what your eye color would be, your height, your weight, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status. You didn't decide any of that. And I point all of that out to say that feeds into this inescapable fact that we cannot help but wonder what is God's will for my life. Because deep down at bottom, we all know that we're not really in control. There is a God, right? That's why you assume all kinds of things are valuable and important and, and full of purpose and meaning. It's because there is a God and he made you. And again, even if you don't profess to believe in a God, you know there is a God because he made you. And so you can't get away from this question, what is his agenda? for my life? What is his will for my life? I realize we try to distract ourselves from that question or downplay that question, but the fact is everything about your life orbits around this core question. Who is this God and what is his will for my life? The inescapable truth is we are completely restless. We are full of anxiousness and irritability unless we deal with this question. Unless ultimately we find our identity in God's agenda, who God is and, and what is his will for our life. What does God most emphatically say about his will for my life? And we see that's a really dominant theme in this part of the letter to the church in Colossae. You see in verse 9, Paul and say we heard about you. We have ceaselessly been doing something. Without ceasing, that's a big statement. Nonstop, without ceasing, what have we been doing? We've been praying for y'all, specifically praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
It's a big deal. Ceaseless prayers that you would be filled, not just have a peripheral knowledge of or know a little bit about, but to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then they say, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as we seek to wrestle with this question, what is God's will for my life? It starts with asking the question, what is spiritual wisdom? Because Paul and Timothy are connecting those ideas right here. We have to first, if we're going to understand God's will, we have to first embrace spiritual wisdom, not earthly wisdom, not wisdom that just comes naturally or intuitively. What is spiritual wisdom? Well, it's sort of obvious to point this out, but it's not intuitive. You know, you can define what something is in part by saying, here's what it's not. And so we need to establish that spiritual wisdom is not intuitive. It doesn't, it doesn't synchronize with our cravings for feeling in control and our cravings for quantifiable success or productivity it's, it's very different. The Bible says God's will, God's ways are not your ways. That's really critical that you, that you constantly remind yourself of that. The, the creator of everything, the sustainer of your life, the person running the world and sovereign over all the details. His thoughts aren't your thoughts. His ways aren't your ways. And the Bible is just brimming with examples of this. And, and when I say the Bible, again, I don't want to assume everybody here is a Christian, so I need to point out that when I say the word Bible, or I reference the scriptures, I'm not, I'm not referencing a book of pious stories and tales of innocence and moral platitudes. If you've actually ever read the Bible, you know that it's, it's way more like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or the television show The Bachelor. It's it's full of a lot of really, really like hard to hear stuff. There's really crazy stories, a lot of debauchery, a lot of immorality, a lot of stuff that you're going to have to really wrestle through. There's no just easy way to nod your, set, you nod your head and say, amen, hallelujah, as you read through the scripture. And so the Bible starts out um, talking about the, the ways of worldly wisdom Right? what comes intuitively to us in contrast with spiritual wisdom, it talks about this early on in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And so worldly wisdom, the, the first iteration or scene of worldly wisdom is found in Genesis 3, and it's a scene where this character Adam and his wife Eve are villainizing each other. They feel, they feel small and weak and inadequate. They feel naked and ashamed, and we can all relate to that feeling. We all feel small and insecure all the time for all kinds of reasons. And if we live out of that insecurity, our natural inclination, our, our fleshly wisdom is, is inclined to just strive to shift blame, right? To, to say, I got to put distance between me and, and whatever the perceived problem is. Wherever the blame is going to land, I've got to make sure it lands on somebody else. And so I'm going to shift the blame. I'm going to villainize somebody else. I'm going to talk about why the other people are bad, not me but why they are the problem. And I'm going to hide. I'm going to just try to, to slink into the shadows and not be seen. I'm going to do a lot of hiding. I'm going to get good at hiding. I'm going to get good at self-justifying. That's what you see. That's worldly wisdom. That's the recipe for worldly wisdom. Being naked and afraid and hiding and blame shifting. We see in the gospel uh, of Mark, 
chapter 10, uh, Jesus' apostolic leadership team, these, these two guys, the sons of Zebedee, that's who they are. Their name is James and John. They come up to Jesus. We're, we're, we're like over halfway through the gospel of Mark, so they've had time to mature and walk with Christ and be refined. And yet in Mark chapter 10, we see James and John coming to Jesus and they say, do for us whatever we ask of you is a pretty audacious thing to ask Jesus to do or to command Jesus to do. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And essentially they say, we want you to give us thrones. We recognize you as a king. And of course, you'll occupy the central, most dominant throne, but we want the side thrones because their, their idea of, of wisdom is this picture of worldly greatness. And these are the apostles of Jesus. These are the people who walked with God in the flesh, who heard God talk about how greatness is not defined by whether or not you occupy a throne. It's, it's defined by whether or not you serve and follow in the way of the sacrificial king. And yet, even though they've heard Jesus talk about that a lot, they still default to this paradigm of worldly wisdom. And they say, we want to be great in the eyes of our colleagues, in the eyes of the world. So why don't you accommodate that agenda? Please do for us whatever we ask. There's a uh, not quite as explicitly negative scene. It's a little more ambiguous. But back in the, the days of this king named David, there's this scene in, in the life of David where he's talking with his advisor, Nathan, and he has this idea of doing something great for God. He says to Nathan, we should build God a temple. Because, of course, he's God, and gods dwell in temples. You go to any, any other people group, you see, like, the God of, of uh, Apollo, right? The God of all the, the, the great, you know, pantheon of gods. They all have their temples. And our God, by comparison, he's, he's dwelling in a tent, right? He's, he's living in this sort of shabby condition. And so David and Nathan, they get together and they say, this is a great idea. This is a wonderful idea. One of the best ideas we've ever had. We should build God a temple. And then God interrupts their meeting, essentially. He comes to, to them and he says, I never asked you for a temple. I, I get that, that that is consistent with your ideas of worldly wisdom. But that's not what I want. You know, if you, if you really want to do something nice for me, maybe you should start by asking me what I want. And what I want at this particular moment in time is I'm, I'm wanting to stay in my tabernacle. I like dwelling in my tent. I don't want to be like all the other pantheon of gods. See, God's ways, God's wisdom is very different than ours. So those are some examples of worldly wisdom. What is spiritual wisdom? Right? That, that Paul and Timothy would ceaselessly pray that we would be filled with God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what is spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, the best way, and probably the simplest, most clearest way to answer that question is to watch Jesus. Let's just, let's just think about what was Jesus like? Because he is the full embodiment of spiritual wisdom. And that word embodiment is actually really key to understanding what spiritual wisdom is. Knowledge of God's will is not merely academic. We, we are people of the book. Certainly we study the word of God. There, there's an academic dimension to it, right? We have to cognitively contemplate God's word. But it doesn't stop there. Because when God comes into the world, in the flesh, he reads the Bible. He's always saying, it is written. So clearly he's been reading it. But he never stops there. He says, it's not enough to have an academic 
cognitive awareness of what God says. You have to act on it. You have to live it out. You have to experientially get into the flow of what God is emphasizing. And so that's what God does. God takes on flesh. He gets down and dirty, right, where the action is. He, he's an embodiment of spiritual wisdom, not just ideas, but the embodiment of spiritual wisdom. You know, we tend to think of mature Christianity as, oh, there's this great Bible conference. You know, there's this great seminar I attended. These, these breakout sessions, these workshops, or maybe it's worship gatherings, and the music is amazing, and just the feelings of, of the, the music and the gathering is, is amazing. And you know, in Jesus' day, he would have had opportunities to access those kinds of things. In his day, it would have been the synagogue and the temple. These would be the places of, of learning about the Torah, God's word, and, and experiencing the worship of God with his people. And Jesus customarily did go to synagogue. And he taught in the synagogues. And he visited the temple. He, he wasn't avoiding them. He customarily, regularly did go. And he participated in those places, in those contexts. But if you watch Jesus in the Gospels, his most intense moments of ministry, his most emphatic moments where he's explicitly talking about the kingdom of God, living out the truths of God's kingdom, where, where do we see those things taking place? Well, they're, they're out in the villages with the people. They're not in just the, the holy huddle of the religious gathering or in the academic settings of studying the Torah. We're not villainizing those places, but we're recognizing that the most emphatic places where Jesus is cultivating mature Christianity, that's happening in the shabby villages of Samaria and Bethany and even the scandalous places like Samaria and in the living rooms of tax collectors and hanging out with prostitutes and these people that no self-respecting rabbi should ever be around. And Jesus says, if you want to know what the most mature paradigm of Christianity is, look no further than God in the flesh. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then of course you will follow him into the places and find yourself amongst the people where he traveled and where he most joyfully and, and enthusiastically invested his time. Verse 10, you see this theme being solidified and developed. It says you, you must walk. Don't, don't just know about things regarding God, but walk in a way worthy of the Lord. You, you, you have to just, you can't just find out truths about God. You have to bear fruit as you follow God, as you work in the ways of God. So it's embodied, it's experiential, it's active. That's spiritual wisdom. We should also point out that spiritual wisdom is backwards. It's, again, like I said before, counterintuitive. It's upside down. So a great example of this is in Matthew chapter 18 where the topic of greatness is being discussed. The apostles, of course, they've been designated as leaders and so it's very right and appropriate for them to discuss, okay, what is mature leadership? What is the best, most greatest way to lead the people of God because we are leaders and their idea of greatness or, or the highest level of Christian maturity, it's, it's a very earthly or worldly paradigm. And in contrast with that, as they're debating this question and arguing amongst themselves about what they think greatness means, Jesus shockingly brings a small child into their midst, into the midst of these grown men having an argument. This is an intimidating context for this child to be in. 
And Jesus puts this little kid right in the midst of these grown men arguing about what is real maturity, what is real Christian greatness. And Jesus simply points at this little kid. I have to imagine he looks pretty intimidated and vulnerable and sort of sheepish as as he's standing there in the midst of these grown men. Vulnerability and frailty. And he says, that, that little child is the paradigm of greatness. That is so backwards from anything we would ever, ever come up with. That'd be like asking the question, who is the greatest person to have ever, um, you know, participated in the NBA? Well, it's Jordan. It's Michael Jordan, of course. I mean, we can kind of ask if it might be LeBron, but we all know it's not. It's Jordan. That's who it is, right? Like the, the, the killer instinct, all of the championships. We know it's Michael Jordan. But it's almost like Jesus would come in to that conversation and he'd point to the towel boy. You know, like the kid who runs out and mops up the sweat when the athletes fall on the ground and it's kind of slippery. The kid who's just mopping up the sweat. And she was like, the greatest, I'm not saying player, greatest participant of, of, you know, of all the people who've ever participated in the system of the NBA. Jesus would say it's that towel boy. It's so backwards. It's so different than anything we would not just come up with, but even recognize or maybe even agree with. Let me draw your attention to your bulletin. Reflection question number two. I, I'm very eager for you to, to take up that challenge, to take action on that reflection question. Um, and I realize it's a big ask. You know, read the whole gospel of Matthew. That's, that's like one of the longer ones, right? It's not the short one. Mark, it's, it's a longer one. But here's what I want you to do. Read the gospel of Matthew at some point. You can do it all in one sitting. You could do it over multiple days or weeks. Read the gospel of Matthew. Uh, get yourself a highlighter. And highlight every instance when you honestly feel like, I don't agree with Jesus. Like every, every instinct in me would not say what Jesus is saying right now. Would not immediately agree with what Jesus is emphasizing right now. As I immerse myself in these narratives and I, I really force myself to feel the tensions and the pressures and the expectations on Jesus. And then to see how he navigates those expectations and pressures, to see what he emphasizes in contrast with people's expectations, man, it ruffles my feathers. It makes me confused. It's, it's just very, very different than what I would choose to be about or choose to say or how I might choose to respond. And the big thing you'll find if you take me up on that homework assignment, the big thing you'll discover is that Jesus mostly is leading us into this paradigm of perfecting his power through your weakness. He's he's leading you in the way where you will feel weak, which is a big reason why we have a a hard time following Jesus. It's a big reason why we are prone to wander away from Jesus and stray off into our own agendas because we see that he's leading us toward things that will make us feel vulnerable and weak. And it begs the question, why is God leading us into weakness? Well, it's because he's all about exercising and developing his power. And you see that talked about in this letter. Experiencing God's strength and power and might. That's what Paul and Timothy want for the church in Colossae. In verse 11, they say, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God. And of course, this is very, very definitively connected to that previous point I just made about taking action on God's word, not just reading about the things God 
commends and commands, but to actually take action on those things. If you act on what God says, most of the time it's going to land you in a world of weakness. Have you ever had that experience? I know some of you have. Where, where you didn't just read about something, but you said, okay, we're going to do what God says. We're going to take action. And not, not very long after that, you were just in a world of feeling like, I feel so small. I feel like I don't have control. I feel so weak. Let's just, let's just catalog some of these. One of the first things that God says to, to human beings in scripture, he's looking at Adam and he says, you should not be alone. Amen? Men should not be left alone for all kinds of reasons, right? Even in a perfect world, before sin entered the world, God says, it's not good for men to be by themselves, okay? So we gotta make them a helper, right? Okay, so marriage, he makes Eve, and, and Adam and Eve get married, they become one. God says, it's good for Adam and Eve to be married. Well, some of y'all are married. How strong do you feel on a, day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Like, man, I've been married 20 years. I got my spouse totally figured out. We've got this whole thing down. It's, we are perfect at it. That's not the testimony. People who've been married for 20 years, 30 years, what they're going to say is, I'm more confused than I was in year one. Honestly, I was naive. I didn't, I, there was so much I didn't know. And the longer I go down this, this path and I steward this mystery of marriage, you know what? There's, there's a lot I don't know. I feel vulnerable. There's a lot of moments where I just feel, I feel weak and I don't feel super confident. It's not to say I'm discouraged all the time. It's just to say this theme of weakness is dominant. So if you obey God's command and you're Adam and you get married to Eve, guess what? You just landed yourself in a world of weakness. What about the command he gives to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. How about that one? Man, having kids, man, you just you feel so powerful. You feel in control of everything, right? You feel as you feel more sufficient and competent than you. You're like, how do we get this baby to stop crying? Like, it doesn't seem like too much to ask, right? Like, feed the baby, birth the baby, change the baby. Nothing is working. Hey, we are we are running a massive sleep deficit here, and it's just getting weaker and weaker. What about when Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the message of the kingdom? Like, we're all supposed to do this. We're supposed to go make disciples. There's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus sends out his disciples, and it's like he forces them into a posture of weakness. He says, okay, you're going to go out into all these villages, and here are the rules. You can't take any money. You can't take any extra provisions. You just have to feel needy and vulnerable and reliant on other people. Oh, and by the way, the thing that you're really most primarily about is, is this message of repentance. So, so you're going to look really needy and you're going to sound crazy. You're going to be offering people like the last thing on earth that they want, which is to admit that they're wrong and that they're needy and they need God to save them. Just, just weakness. What about the command in the, the letter to the church in Galatia where he says, uh, Paul says, you, you got to remember the poor. Have, have any of y'all actually ever, like, tried to help out a homeless person? Like, not just give them something on the street corner. I mean, like, stop your life for a little while and, like, engage with them, press into the, their story. Like, actually try to get into the details of what would it rigorously look like to help this person. I know, I know some people who've done that. It, it's hard. It's hard. 
it, it, there's no formula. There's no way that that's just going to be easy. It's going to feel, it's going to feel pretty weak at a lot of points along the way. And let me draw your attention to the end of verse 11. So verse 11 says, we, we want to, we want to be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God. And then verse 11 ends, why? Why do we want all this power, the strength of God according to his glorious might? It's for all endurance and patience. What if I called you up and I said, hey, do you want to be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God? I invite you into that, being strengthened according to the glorious might of God, you're going to say, yeah, sounds great. Of course, I want to be strengthened according to the glorious might of God. But then you might ask, but, but why? Like, for, for what reason? And the answer here is for patience, for endurance. It's not so that you would feel more impressive or more elite or bigger than other people or just in your own eyes. It's for patience. It's for endurance. And honestly, there are so many realistic applications of this. I have a friend who struggles with same-sex attraction. He just very intensely struggles with same-sex attraction. And the, the power of God in that friend's life is that God is inviting him into a life of celibacy, abstaining from that very strong desire, and that God is, is leading him into this way of enduring. Instead of enjoying the thing that his flesh wants, God is saying, I want to strengthen you with all my might so that you could patiently endure. So, so you could be completely washed by the blood of Jesus and, and live out the remainder of your days waiting for Jesus to come back because that desire of your flesh is never going to be satisfied in this life. There's, there's, there's something off about that desire and so the power of God prevails in your life to shepherd you in the way of endurance. I have friends who have really difficult things going on in their marriages. And when you sit down with these married couples, and, and sometimes they just come right out and say it. Sometimes it's this underlying sentiment. They're like, I, I don't know if I want to continue. Right? We, I, don't, I don't need to tell you all this. Divorce is a thing. The divorce rate's high in America. People take that option all the time. But the power of God in those people's lives, according to the Bible, is, guess what? You get to endure you don't get to find the exit. That's not the power of God in your life. The power of God in your life. The glorious might of God in your life is that you get to persevere and patiently endure, even when things are hard. Let me use an example from my life. I am a consumer. I look at Amazon.com at least five times a day. I, I, oftentimes I hit the buy now button. It's delicious. I love it. And um, I track it. You know, when is it showing up? And I, I just, I obsess. I want stuff. And some of you are thinking, but Tyler, don't you already have stuff? Like, but I want more. I love it. I love consuming things. I love buying things. I'm a materialistic junkie. What would the power of God in my life look like if that's true? Well, maybe instead of buying more stuff, maybe I just get content. Maybe I opt to be patient and endure with the things that I already have instead of buying more things, right? That, that could be an example of how the power of God wants to be at work in your life. 
And again, the Bible gives us all kinds of examples of this. The grand promise in Scripture, we referenced it during Sailor's Baptism, is the promise of God to Abraham and Sarah. Okay, so go back and look at that story. How much endurance and how much patience was at play in that story? Obviously, God, one of the main agendas of God, the will of God for Abraham and Sarah's life was that they would be enduring and, and exercising patience as they clung to the promises of God's power and might. And in fact, they, a manifestation of God's power in their life would be the endurance. The decade after decade after decade of waiting for God to come through on his promise. The great saga in the Old Testament is the saga of Moses, the Exodus. Would you realize that that whole narrative is full of themes of endurance and patience? You know, one of the promises of God to Abraham was that the people of God would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years. That's part of the promise. I'm not making that up. You, you're probably familiar, that, familiar with the fact that God's promise to Abraham was that you'll have a huge family, more, more offspring than there are stars in the sky. You'll, you'll have all this land, all these things that we would immediately look at and say, those are good. But also part of the promise was, hey, you're going to go through this 400 plus years of suffering. That's part of what God said would happen. And then finally, the, the Redeemer comes, right? Moses, the guy who's going to lead him out of slavery. He comes along and, well, we have to wait 40 years. As, he, as he's raised in the palace of Egypt, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then finally, he tries to deliver them. He sees injustice happening and he tries to take action and the people of God reject him. And so we wait another 40 years as he goes out to Midian to live with sheep, to be a shepherd. And then he comes back and he's developed a speech impediment. He's as weak as he's ever been. He's way past his prime. And we get out of Egypt and then what do we, what do we see? We see another 40 years. No, no promised land immediately. We have 40 years. So we have 400 years, followed by 40 years, followed by 40 years, followed by 40 years. There's a lot of patience, a lot of endurance that, that God would have to cultivate in those periods of time. And we could just keep going. The, the examples just are so prolific throughout scripture. And here's what's crazy about that, is when we, when we embrace this power of God and, and we, we start to get in step with his agenda for cultivating our endurance and our patience. It's so critical we see this. It's not a grudging or reluctance, a reluctant endurance or patience. Look at the end of verse 11. It's with joy. We endure. We exercise patience, not in this grumbling, well, I wish this weren't the case, but okay, sort of way. We endure and we exercise patience with joy. And I know you guys have seen this. This is a phenomenon, but, but it shows up in life. You, you have friends or you've observed where people did something really hard, like very grueling, very strenuous, requiring a lot of endurance and patience, and yet they seemed happy. It was like the joy set before them to do that thing that was grueling and hard, requiring endurance and patience. For example, like having a kid. A lot of people, they have this kid and their free time goes away, right? Life as they knew it 
vanishes. And every the child, and they're trying to get their kids to take a little bit of a nap so they can recover a little bit of the sleep. And then what do you see them doing? A lot of them will then go on to have another kid. And you're like, you just, you just suffered more than anybody I know, and now you're going to do it to yourself again? And that's what I'm talking about. People, people choose to do things that are really hard, and yet they seem to have this joy, even this unquenchable joy. Now, I want you to imagine someone who, who saw all the sacrifice that kids required, and at one point in their life, they decided to renounce ever having kids. And, and let's say they even took steps to ensure that they wouldn't have kids, like they surrendered to some sterilization procedure. And then later, they changed their mind. And they felt really remorseful. And they thought, man, I would love to have kids. What was I thinking? Renouncing kids and sterilizing myself. I should never have done that. I'm, I'm, I'm so, so eager to have kids. And then God intervenes in their life and he forgives them. And he gives them the ability to have kids. Imagine how joyful that person would be to engage and endure in the painstaking process of parenthood. And that's the picture Paul and Timothy are painting here. That's the kind of joy and gratitude being described in verses 12 through 14. Ultimately, this is the will of God for your life, that you would embrace his forgiveness and enjoy being a co-heir with Jesus. That's God's foundational, most primary will for your life. Look at verse 12 and following. Paul and, Timothy, Paul and Timothy say, We give thanks to the Father who has qualified y'all to share in the inheritance of the saints. And he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I would plead with you to slow down and really press into the details of what Paul and Timothy are communicating there. Don't nod off or say, oh yeah, I've read that before, okay, moving on. Really slow down and immerse yourself in what they are saying about your life. You have been qualified to share as an inheritor of heaven. You who are evil, you who made yourself an enemy of God. You've been forgiven. And not just forgiven, you have been made a co-heir with Jesus. You inherit the kingdom of God. That's incredible. You, know, you could go back. I mentioned earlier the Bible has these stories that are very gritty, like you know, storylines like the television show Breaking Bad or Sopranos or The Bachelor. Honestly, if you go back and you read the stories of King David, a lot of his life looks like a lot of those TV series. David, realize David when he was at the height of his power, right? He had conquered all these other kingdoms. He was feeling comfortable. He was feeling confident. What did he do? Well, he let it go to his head. And he grew very, very complacent. And he had an adulterous affair. And then he killed one of his most loyal followers, one of his most loyal soldiers, the wife, uh, the husband of the wife that he had had the affair with. And he tried to cover it up. He murdered that man and then tried to cover it all up and just forget about it. And yet, the main theme of David's life, God's most passionate and primary will for David's life is not that he would wallow in a sense of guilt for having done those things, but that he would embrace the forgiveness of God 
for having done those things. And not just embrace the forgiveness, but embrace the staggering, too-good-to-be-true-sounding reality that he was still a child of God. Not just forgiven for his crimes, but set on his way, separate from the family. No, he was, he was an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Imagine being forgiven like that. I referenced Edmund Pavinci in the call to worship. I mean, that's what he experienced, right? I mean, he had sold his soul to the queen of darkness. He betrayed his family. And yet he was offered forgiveness and a place amongst the kings of Narnia. Because that's the love of Christ. That is what is most primarily supposed to prevail in your life. God would say, that's my will for you. More than anything else, that you would receive my grace, receive my mercy, and be utterly and completely defined by it. Enjoy being an heir of God, saved from darkness, transferred into my kingdom, completely forgiven and redeemed. Relish the fact that you are with Christ for all eternity because of the prevailing mercy of God and the scandalous love that he wants to put into your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we know that this is the good news. We've heard it a lot. And we know and we admit that it's easy for us to go on autopilot. It's easy for us to read the Bible for ourselves or to hear it referenced and to just sort of say, Meh, yeah, I've heard that. Now, now back to whatever I'm concerned about or troubled by or anxious about. And God, I pray that Really, nothing short of a miracle will cause this to happen. Nothing short of your personal invasion of our lives through the person of the Spirit. Um, we pray that we would be daily provoked to, to sit in awe of these mysteries of your mercy. And that we would be um, brought into alignment with the things that you really emphasize in Scripture. Which the thing I see you emphasizing more and more as I read your, your word is your mercy. Your insistence on pursuing your enemies and enveloping them in your love and saying, this is what defines you. My forgiveness, my redemption, and my uh, adamant, adamant command that you receive this status of co-heir with Jesus. So we ask that you would do that work in us and, and continue to do that work all the way to the day of completion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.